This podcast is sponsored by Canaccord Genuity Wealth Management, award-winning wealth managers who go above and beyond to support and guide you. Visit candowealth.com to start building your wealth with confidence. Hello and welcome to Coffee House Shots, the Spectator's daily politics podcast. I'm Cindy Yu and I'm joined by James Forsyth. So James, today is April 1st and it's the day that the new energy price cap kicks in, which means much higher energy bills for millions of households across the country. And unfortunately, it's not an April Fool's joke. Do you think that this is the moment when the cost of living crisis becomes very, very real and the pressure on the Chancellor and the government in general increases? The cost of living crisis is already real, obviously real for some people right now at the moment. But I think it will become real for even more people in the coming months because that's when people will start paying these higher bills for fuel, for food and the like. I think in some ways the kind of the, the difficulty for the government is that you know, this is coming in now, it's coincided with a cold snap, so you know, people will be, really will be feeling these dilemmas about whether to turn the heating on or not. And look, I think the government has, I think one thing that is that the government have not done a good job of pointing out is they've already spent £9 billion helping people with this increase. And I think it's very uncertain now what the increase is going to be from October. You know, that will be announced in August. And I think you saw the volatility in the markets, which is the other day when there were kind of hopeful noises out of the peace talks in Istanbul between Russia and Ukraine, the price of energy started falling yesterday when Vladimir Putin appeared to be suggesting that, you know, anyone who wasn't prepared to pay for their Russian gas in rubles would be cut off. You know, energy prices began to rise because not that the UK imports a huge amount of gas from Russia, but the, the European gas price would rise because the Russian supplies would essentially be taken out of the market. So I think that the cost of living is going to make politics very scratchy and very difficult for the government over the next nine months or so. And I think one of the reasons why the next election, I'd be very surprised the next election was before 2024, is if you're the government, you, you will want this to to have passed through the system as much as possible before you go to the country again. And James, speaking of scratchy politics, yesterday evening we saw what, by this government standards, is even a record on U-turns, as they performed two U-turns on LGBT conversion therapy yesterday. Tell us about the first position, then the second, and now the third. So the government said it was going to put down primary legislation to ban conversion therapy. Then a leak appeared suggesting that that ban was going to be dropped. Then the government U-turned again, saying that it was going to do it, but not but trans conversion therapy would be left out. So lesbian and gay conversion therapy would be ended, but trans conversion therapy would not be covered by legislation. I think what this reveals is a, the problem of the way in which Downing Street is trying to handle the Tory parliamentary party at the moment. At the moment, the emphasis are on let's not have fights with Tory MPs. And I think that was one of the reasons why this conversion therapy ban was going to be dropped. This information was kept very tight. You know, the word is that Liz Truss, who is uh, the Equalities Minister as well as the Foreign Secretary, did not know. I mean, this was very much within number 10. The problem is, as soon as the news leaked out, a whole other set of Tory MPs, led by Alicia Kearns, started saying, well, no, 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 we want this ban. And so Downing Street was then forced into another U-turn. And I think this is the problem, which is, it would be one thing governing with a principally of your eye on Tory MPs and what they think, if all Tory MPs agreed. But on issue after issue, whether it be conversion therapy or fracking, they, they don't all have the same views. So you try and um, placate one set and then you find that you've annoyed another set. And that, I think, is a problem that Downing Street are going to have to grapple with, which is if this is the kind of star that you are guiding by, you have to realise that there is not unanimity in the Tory parliamentary party on lots of the most contentious issues in politics right now. Mm-hmm. And this is something that you write about in your Times column today as well in terms of the energy crisis. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, and I think there's a kind of, you know, there are 
some Tory MPs were very, very opposed to onshore wind. There are other Tory MPs who are in favour of onshore wind. And so you, you could, if you are trying to, to steer a course on that, it's hard to work it out. And I think you also see this, though, which is the other, dis- other question is when you end up suggesting something's going to happen and it doesn't, and that causes more upset. So I think Tory MPs were under the view that when this new takeover by a Chinese company of Newport Wafer Fab, British semiconductor chip manufacturer, it was going to be reviewed on national security grounds. I think people thought that would lead to it being blocked. It's not led to it being blocked. And I think this also suggests a problem with the way that the UK national security takeovers regime works. I mean, the reason it's not been blocked is that the, the intellectual property has not been considered sufficiently unique. I mean, the argument that that fails to take into account is semiconductors is a deeply contested geopolitical space right now. And the volume of supplies matters, as well as how cutting edge they are. And in a world in which, you know, you, you saw, you've seen repeatedly, you know, things like car manufacturing having to stop, uh, be halted because there weren't enough semiconductor chips. Given that China's desire, you know, publicly stated, not hidden, to develop a market dominant position in this sector. It strikes me as foolish to say that there are no national security concerns about this Chinese company taking it over, because especially because I think it has become clearer and clearer in recent years that Chinese companies are not like companies in liberal democracies. They are they are at the end of the day ultimately tools of the state, and that's why the government doesn't want Chinese companies involved in the UK's nuclear energy program. And it seems to me odd not to see how given how contested the semiconductor space is and how volume matters, as well as the kind of IP, that they, they, they are letting this takeover go ahead. Mm, but I can see why it's slightly new definition of national security that people are advocating now. I mean, so Stephen Lovegrove, uh, the person put in charge of this inquiry, had a more traditional view of what national security be- means. But, James, what you're saying is, in the future, as the West goes towards this competition, contest, conflict, whatever you want to call it, with China, that we also want to look after our own interests. And that, looking after our own interests has now become also national security. No, no, I mean, I mean this is a, I, I would draw a distinction here. I mean, the point is that in the, in the case of semiconductors, it's not just, oh, we don't want countries to buy a level of technology that they don't currently have because they could put that to all sorts of uh, uses that we're not comfortable with, right? It's that the sheer volume, who is producing the semiconductors in the global market, also matters. And I think that is where we are failing to see the importance of national security here. Now, I think you can argue that, you know, oh, look, the UK has made its money in recent years by being a very open economy, by allowing lots of foreign investment. Look, this is not the kind of UK equivalent of a Taiwan semiconductor manufacturing company. They are not, sure. you know, they are not, you know, streets ahead of anybody else in the world. And I, but I think that I think, but I think there is. A, I think the point here is we've got to realise that the volume in this sector matters. China wants to establish a market dominant position, which would which would create vulnerabilities for the UK and other Western countries. And you've got to think about that. I think this is all part of. I think personally, I think the UK needs to be aware of the supply chain risks of becoming too dependent on China in these tech products. I think you want to avoid. That making the repeat that some European countries have made with Russia and energy, you know, thinking, you know, oh, we, we can just get it from them and that there's, there's no problem there. I mean, that, 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 that is something that the UK needs to be aware of. At some point, I think there is a really valuable role for the G7 because the danger, obviously, is that it's just descends into, into kind of pure protectionism. You know, you know, everyone says, 
don't allow any company to be taken over by anybody else because that. But I think there is a case for the G7 or an exp- leading and expand the group countries bigger than the G7 that basically says, right, let's work on secure supply chains and let's let's essentially look at how we are going to interact with each other to avoid us becoming too dependent, especially when the kind of made in China strategy is so explicit about how China wants to gain market dominance in AI, semiconductors and all of those things. I think there's a I mean, I mean, the balance to strike is how do you avoid this becoming kind of protectionism? So you, you, you end up in the example that every British politician likes to give, of you know, you don't want to end up in the French situation where you block a yogurt manufacturer being taken over on national security grounds. But I mean, there is a case for thinking through some of these sectors in a different way than we have to date. It's not just about the IP here; it's also about volume and, and share in the market. Mm, and in particular, because China's not doing actually very well on that Made in China 2025 strategy. It means three years to go until 2025, and semiconductor achievements have been much less than what the government wanted it to be. So I think there's that context as well. I I also think it's fascinating that you look at this discussion in the US now. You know, the US has very strict rules about foreign companies buying, coming in and investing in the US and what they can do and what they can't do. I think it's fascinating that the US is now discussing legislation to act the other way around about US firms and banks investing in right. things overseas. And I mean, that, that is, again, it's another example of what is going to be one of the stories of, of, uh, of the next decade, which is this decoupling between yeah. the West and China. So where do you think this wafer fab uh, question goes next then? Because we've just talked about government U-turns. Could there be another U-turn? I think it's difficult in that, you know, you had a national security review that has come to a conclusion. How do you get away from that? I think it will lead to a debate in Tory circles about whether new legislation is needed to put into law some of these different definitions of national security. I think then, and also a kind of cultural change in Whitehall about how the question is looked at, but it's not just about the IP. James, thanks very much. And thank you very much for listening.